Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior Hollywood editor, Hillary Busis. Welcome back, Hillary. Hello. Uh, we are gathered because we have the Golden Globe nominations to talk about. It was a fun and weird morning, which is always what the Golden Globe nominations mornings are. Just all of us who know better than to get bent out of shape about what the Golden Globes do and then do it anyway. Um, so we'll talk about those. And then also, uh, as we record this, the Golden Globes have just happened and the SAG Awards have not yet happened. But when you listen to this, the SAG Awards will have happened. So we'll have a bonus segment with me and Richard talking about it that you will hear first. So let's hear me and Richard in the future talking about the SAG Award nominations and then jump into our Golden Globes conversation. Okay, here we are as promised. Uh, I think I said it was going to be me and Richard, but it's me and Richard and Joanna. Bonus! Surprise! And we're here to talk about the SAG nominations, which uh, have just happened. Guys, I feel like we were really innocent yesterday in this Globes conversation that you're about to hear talking about Jared Leto getting nominated for a Golden Globe. Uh, now he's nominated for a SAG Award. Um is Jared Leto going to get nominated for an Oscar for The Little Things? Well, it seems like the big Warner Brothers push for The Little Things kind of is working. You know, they did a <sighs> yeah. lot of, like, screenings with this tagged-on thing at the end with a Q&A with Pete Hammond and Jared Leto. Um, so, yeah, he was the person out front with that movie more than Rami Malek and Denzel Washington. You know, you'll hear in this episode when we talk about the Golden Globes that we really did think that that was a kind of fluky Aaron Taylor Johnson and Nocturnal Animals thing. But the SAGs actually have a ton of overlap in, in their voting bodies uh, with the Academy. So yes. <laughs> not entirely. Plenty of people in SAG are not um, on the SAG nominating committees are not uh, in the Academy. But yeah, that's that's a, that's that was a, a big shock for me in a fun way. Less fun, I think, was like the idea that Glenn Close might finally win an Oscar for a supporting role in a bad movie in which she's bad in it and it will be done over Zoom. That feels really depressing to me. Yeah, that that is kind of a dystopian picture you just painted there. This is a it's a really weird twist in this supporting actress narrative, right? Because like if Amanda Seyfried, like basically if if you're not nominated for a SAG, 
you're unlikely to be nominated for an Oscar, less likely given like, you know, the guilds and how they vote. Would Is that accurate? Like, what do you Yes. Think? Although I think the big noteworthy recent exception is Regina King, who was not nominated for SAG for Beale Street and then won. So That's she's true. kind of the like, she's kind of the exception that proves the rule. But it's hard to know if Amanda Seyfried can pull that similar thing off. In terms of just pure nominations, with the win aside... Um, I did look back in recent years in the supporting and lead categories at the SAGs and the Oscars and how they matched up. And it's usually about a three to four match, you know, mm-hmm. with one or two swings. Regina King is, the, you know, the only time when the swing thing in the Oscars where I mean, that I could see that who won the thing. But like uh-huh. there's plenty of reason to think that one of the four SAG nominated supporting actresses won't get in and Seyfried will, or that Leto won't get in at the SAGs or, or the Oscars, but Paul Racy from Sound of Metal will. Like there is a lot of precedent for variation. So yeah. people shouldn't panic just yet, but it is, you know, it, it, it feels a lot more concrete now that Glenn yeah. and other people will be in that Oscar hunt. What do you make of the Hillbilly Elegy um, representation of the SAGs, not just for Glenn Close, but for Amy Adams as well? I'm trying to wrap my head around that as I uh, kind of write a sort of reaction, what we know about the Oscars thing piece uh, for the site. Um, I think it's I'm of two minds of it. On the one hand, I think they could be actors circling the wagons around a movie starring actors they like that Mm -hmm. got really slammed by critics and maligned politically. And, you know, it might be a sort of like, you don't get to tell us what's good. (laughs) This is an anti-Richard Lawson vote is what you're saying. They read your review. (laughs) (laughs) Or it could simply be that these are two actors who have been nominated for Oscars a combined, I think like 13 or 14 times. Right. um, And have never won are kind of two very famous Amy Adams and Glenn Close, very famous also rands uh, in recent Oscar history. Well, in Glenn Close's case, it's about a 35-year Oscar history, if not longer. Um, But, you know, and so maybe that was enough to be like, like, yeah, we don't like the movie, but like we support them and their, you know, (laughs) quest toward Oscar glory. Not that Amy Adams, I think, has much of a shot of even getting nominated at the Oscars. But yeah, so I I don't know. Maybe it's a combination of those two things, but there definitely feels something kind of tribal about it. Like it's a bit like... You know, this is our community and and we're going to protect uh, these two luminaries uh, f- who, who sort of represent us. Yeah. Uh, and there's also something like I think the SAG Awards can often be like a little bit behind on buzz, quote unquote. And it's a little hard to tell this year because everything's weird this year. But like, you know, I think Judas and the Black Messiah would have been a good ensemble nominee. But it feels like that one's kind of like still coming in the future. Although maybe you could say yeah. the same for Minari, which I think we can all say we are relieved to see uh, do really well among these nominees. Um, so I just <laughs> I wonder if Philbillyology is kind of like a holdover for SAGs that we won't see at the Oscars. Although I might be coming around to you, Richard, that like on close, you really might win this whole thing. I mean, it's wild. It's wild, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, like, the SAGs sometimes, it, they miss strange things. Like, they didn't nominate Daniel Day-Lewis for Phantom Thread. And yeah. it's like, maybe they just saw it late. Or maybe they just didn't like the performance. I don't know. But, like, you know, yeah, I think you're right, Kitty, that there is a kind of rhythm to these things. The rhythm is all thrown off, thrown yes. off, you know, kilter this year. This but, year, yeah. Um, but, you know, you, you know, we talked about this with the Globes, as you'll hear, but, like, uh, Helena Zengel is her name, right? Mm-hmm. Um, getting nominated for News of the World. It's like, okay, so they did They did watch that movie. It's not yeah. that they sort of were late to it. It's like they saw it. So, yeah, it's a, it's 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 hard to know the psychology of it, but I, I like having a clearer picture now because it, we now actually have, like, concrete knowledge of how people are thinking. Yeah. The, the other absence besides – the absences besides Amanda Seyfried that 
um, you know, give me pause. Delroy Lindo, obviously, that's mm-hmm. um, that's one. And then Paul Racy as well, um, missing. Uh, despite like you know, we were just talking about the good deal of momentum behind him out of the critics uh, awards. So and each uh, of them had yeah. co-stars nominated, like Chadwick Boseman right. nominated for the Five Bloods, and then uh, Riz Ahmed was nominated yeah. for Sound of Metal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sound of Metal would have been, like, when I was thinking right beforehand, like, what are, like, some really weird wild cards? Like, Sound of Metal would have been a great ensemble nominee. Like, Nomadland, too, although you understand, like, why they can't get in with, like, very large casts with a bunch of people in a room together, which I think is what all of the uh, ensemble nominees are. I loved, I love that ensemble category this year. I think it's a great, I think that is, like, my favorite snapshot of what this year of movies has been. It's a good, yeah, it's a good lineup. And like, I think you, you, whether or not you have your problems with the trial of Chicago 7 in the movie, I think I like more than some people. Um, I think Sasha Baron Cohen's great in it. And I think the ensemble nod is kind of inevitable for it. So I'm for it. And I was really relieved to see the five bloods show up after the Golden Globes. I mean, one, one quirk of the um, best ensemble uh, nominees this year, which is actually not really a quirk because this is often, if not almost always the case. But, like, of the 48 nominated actors in the combined five films nominated, 10 are women. Yeah. Or, or girls. And that's a pretty staggering difference. It could just be written off, the, you know, yes, these are big, it's a diverse uh, not group of nominees in, in some senses, but, like, these are a lo- very, a lot of male ensemble stories. And even the women nominated for, like, in the, the cast of Defy Bloods and One Night in Miami, they're pretty small parts. Yeah. Um, which feels a little bit out of step with, you know, how people are talking about like Carrie Mulligan's momentum for Promising Young Woman and some of the, the TV stuff, you know, people are really excited about Michaela Cole uh, getting nominated. Like, uh, you know, th- that momentum about like uh, gender issues and, and women's rights, like th- that does, is not reflected um, in the quote unquote, you know, top prize at the sex. Yeah. And even if you nominated the ensemble of Promising Young Woman, like it's it's more men than women, probably. Yeah, just exactly. For the, uh, the supporting players in that. Um, <laughs> but true. yeah, I do think the supporting actress category being so kind of thin is um, is indicative of of what's going on there because you've got Chicago Seven, One Night Miami, and Five Bloods that are just like almost exclusively male cast and are kind of built that way. Um, you guys want any other final notes on the SAG nods? And um, I mean, you can talk about television if you want to. I kind of don't even know how to start wrapping my head around that because it's so many categories. I just have a few things really quickly that I want to touch on really quickly. Um, in, in the best actress in a drama category is all Netflix actresses, which is wild yeah. to me. That's like a, like they have a little and it's just two shows, The Crown and Ozark. So that's that's wild. Um, the Undoing Love uh, endures beyond the globes into the into the sags. So that's interesting with uh, Nicole and Hugh getting in there. Um, and then one last movie thing I want to mention is um, these big numbers that Olivia Coleman and Chadwick Boseman just put up, right? That Olivia Coleman got three SAG nominations and two Golden Globe nominations. And Boseman got a Golden Globe nomination and four SAG nominations if you count the ensemble um, prizes, which I think you should. And that's, you know... The, those are the kind of numbers we don't usually see on one performer um, in a given year. Bozen makes a lot of sense because this year, in a lot of ways, is about honoring him and his legacy. But, uh, you know, Olivia Coleman putting up these big numbers in both the movie side and the TV side um, is impressive. So Well, and, 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 it, and it disproves any sort of unfair theory back when she beat Glenn Close at the Oscars a couple of years ago that 
this was like a weird fluke and she was just going to return to England and we would never remember her. You know, yeah, <laughs> like, right, right, right. that's no, clearly was, not, not happened. <laughs> I was thinking about her standing up there with her Oscar being like, well, this will never happen again. And then like, look at looking at Glenn Close is be like, it's happening again. <laughs> the cycle repeats. Yeah. yeah. She and she and she's going to call Annette Benning and be like, so how did you deal with the swank? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I seem to have my own <laughs> emerging problem. A Glenn Close and Annette Benning uh, movie, though, that is something I would absolutely watch. Um, oh, also, real quick on the TV thing, I was so happy to see Nicholas Holkin nominated for The Great. Me too. We all know I love him. He was I interviewed him on this show many months ago for The Great. Uh, he's so great on that show, and that it, it got nominated for Globes too, and it was so ignored by the Emmys that I'm delighted to see it coming back. I completely. It felt like it didn't exist for the Emmys at all. So yeah, yeah. I mean, Schitt's Creek is probably going to clean up as as you might hear Hillary talk about in our Globe segment. Uh, Schitt's Creek is probably going to clean up here, but there's a lot of great nominees uh, in in the comedy categories. So I'm excited about that. But yeah, I mean, like the the um, the last thing I'll say about the Amanda Seyfried thing, which really surprises me, uh, is I just don't understand Gary Oldman getting nominated and Amanda Seyfried not. I just think that she's the reason that movie works at all. I just need to say that. And that's that's my, and that's my piece on Mick, you know. In the reverse, that Helen Zangle keeps getting nominated and Tom Hanks doesn't. Which, right. like, it's yeah. his... I mean, I, yeah, it's very a strange combo. Um, before we wrap this up and, and kick to ourselves talking about the clips, can we just talk about the chaos of the nomination announcements of this? <laughs> I didn't it was, watch it. Oh, my God. You it, was, <laughs> it was so nuts because it's David Diggs on the Instagram live page yeah. of the SAG Awards, which, okay. Um, and he's supposed to, like, be on there with Lily Collins but, like, can't find her. And apparently he has to, like, wait for her to comment on the video to let her in, which I don't understand. And But all these other, like, brand, like, TNT drama keeps commenting. Facebook app keeps commenting. He's like, I can't find Lily. Like, you have to stop commenting it was and then he gets nominated for what category like best actor in a limited series for hamilton which is crazy like truly crazy and then she doesn't get nominated for emily in paris and oh it was it was bananas but she cheered michaela cole when she got nominated for uh, yes yeah she was she she saw where the yeah she uh, she was aware of the uh the, the Scandal from yesterday, I guess, from the Globes. Oh, I mean, this is a preview of what we're about to talk. I know this is all weird and out of order, but did you <laughs> did you guys read the Guardian piece from the Emily in Paris writer about how I May Destroy You should have been nominated? No. That's, it's really uh, good. I really yeah, recommend really you guys go check it out. Um, I don't have her name handy, but uh, if you type in Emily in Paris writer Guardian, she's got a great little op-ed about like, yeah, I'm happy to be nominated. Our show's nominated, but I May Destroy You. <laughs> it's like... What's happening, Golden Globes? Yeah, so, yeah no, the know. SAG Awards really um, kind of made up some ground there. Uh, and I was like, David Diggs and Lily Collins are both like very good sports about a completely messy process that was so easily avoided. <laughs> I don't know why they did it that way. It, it was also funny that David Diggs on a couple occasions couldn't really mask his contempt for, <laughs> for what had just been nominated. Like, I think especially the one with uh, the, all the crown and um, Ozark. And actresses. Ozark. And he was like, yeah. I guess those were the only two shows. <laughs> Yeah. I wonder which one he hates, Ozark or The Crown. I'll have to have to figure that one out. Um, okay, should we should we throw it to ourselves and uh, go back to talk about the Golden Globes? Yes, let's throw it to our, our younger selves. <laughs> okay, guys, so the Golden Globes. Uh, Hillary, you've been kind of uh, steering the ship on our on our website reaction to them and helping collect the stubs and surprises. So do you want to just kind of give the general rundown of the level of shock, like on a scale of one to ten of weird? How weird are this year's Globes? This year's Globes, that is a good question. I mean, <laughs> look, we don't we don't have we don't have a year where the tourist is somehow getting 20 nominations. So considering the level that the Golden Globes have set, I would say this is 
this is not a 10, this is not a 9 or an 8. Even though it's been such a strange year generally for movies, I think that many of the nominations are about what we expected. Um, Many of them fall in line with what Vanity Fair predicted uh, when we posted our predictions for the nominations a few days ago. The biggest shock is probably in the best picture drama field. Uh, There is a surprising lack of movies featuring black ensembles, um, even though there have been so many movies with largely black casts that have gotten a lot of attention this year, a lot of critical praise, including Maharani's Black Bottom and The Five Bloods uh, and One Night in Miami. None of those movies were nominated for Best Picture. Uh, Best Picture Drama is a very white category, which is surprising after the year that we've had in the movies especially the acclaimed movies that have been released. I would say that's probably the biggest surprise. That and uh, similarly, I May Destroy You also got snubbed entirely in the TV realm, even though that was one of the most celebrated uh, limited series of 2020. Yeah, I think when you look through the nominations, like you see Ma Rainey and One Night Miami uh, kind of showing up throughout with acting nominations and uh, Regina King got nominated for Best Director. But uh, Defy Bloods feels like the really big snub in there, like this very major Spike Lee movie that I think we've said on the show a couple times, like could very well win Best Picture, like was was left out entirely, which to me is kind of crazy. Especially because isn't uh, aren't Spike Lee's children the Golden Globe ambassadors at this year's <laughs> ceremony? Yep. <laughs> I believe so, yes. In the grand Hollywood tradition of the Golden Globes, the ambassador being a famous person's child. Uh, Although they've done multiple kids several times. Like, they they change it up all over the place. Um, I guess we could be grateful there's probably not going to be an in-person ceremony where they all have to, like, awkwardly stand around while this all happens. We'll see. Well, right. If if, uh, this is not really on on topic when talking about the nominations themselves, but what does a Golden Globe ambassador do if there are no people to hand awards to? What are you do? Like, what are you ambassadoring? <laughs> this is a fantastic you, question. You Maybe negotiate we... peace treaties with other awards groups. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were appointed by the Biden administration, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the thing about the best picture snubs uh, for the five bloods and one night in Miami and Ma Rainey is that you can't even blame it on like a, a Netflix bias. You can, well, Defy bloods and Ma Rainey, they were Netflix and the HFPA wanted to honor cinema because Mank and trial of the Chicago seven are also on Netflix. Like th- yeah. there, there, there doesn't seem to be any explanation beyond an absolute lack of awareness about like diversity and honoring stories about people of color um, in a way that like, it does not reflect well at all on the HFPA in a long history of things not reflecting well on them. Although I will say, like, it's it's not quite like in the musical or comedy category where you have uh, Hamilton, which debatably should be up for any of these awards at all, and then Music, a movie that no one knew existed uh, until it was nominated for the Globes. Like, the five nominee, nominees in motion picture drama are very good movies that, you know, I feel glad that they have recognized they didn't go on some kind of crazy tangent um and i was especially glad to see the father make it in i think we maybe predicted that it would be preferred by these kind of europhilic globes but we've talked a couple times about how that movie feels like it's not getting the amount of attention it deserves so i'm grateful to see that despite the kind of glaring absences here and it's also probably worth pointing out that in the best directed category we have three women i think for the first time in globes history so that's kind of exciting three women who made good movies that we like yeah yeah, the director had the director lineup. I mean, Aaron Sorkin. I think you can maybe have your quibbles about, but that's a pretty solid list of people. I think, Joanna, what do you think? Yeah, I think. I mean, it's it's worth noting that there there is some diversity in in the acting categories. I think what's true is that the HFPA is just like five years behind the Oscars in terms of like representation push. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like, this is actually pretty good for the HFPA but not good by the standards that are set by other awards bodies right now. Does that make sense? Yeah, Um, totally. And 
you know, we talked about this already with the the decision to put Minari in the foreign language category and our thoughts around that. It's notable that there were no acting nominations from Minari, no directing nomination from Minari. It's just there, sitting there in the foreign language category. And like, it does feel like a repeat of of shunning some other Asian led um, films in the past. So, you know, that that is frustrating to see. But, you know, there's there's some there's some bright spots in here as well. I'm actually in, in of all the snubs that I'm surprised by. And this is not just because, like, I'm salty about the predictions that I got wrong. But I am genuinely surprised to see Bridgerton snubbed because it feels like. Yeah, it would be something the HFPA would really. It like. seems like it was made in a Golden Globes lab, like by right. a horny, weird <laughs> award scientist. Yeah, with like all this fresh new talent that they can sort of like plant their flag on, which they love to do. Yeah, like uh, Emily Domperi, I guess, is like their like what they decided <laughs> to go with instead. But I was just sort of like I was really surprised about the Bridgerton aspect of it I'm, all. Was it just too late in the game? That's the one know. thing I can think of. I mean, it's not like, you know, it premiered over a month ago, so it's not so crazy. But, you know, I, th- I guess The Flight Attendant would be the most recent show that made the cut right. here. Um, and, you know, they included The Great, which felt like, you know, the Emmys basically ignored it entirely. So the, the, the long memory for the TV categories was kind of surprising. I do think, though, that something that happens with these awards every year and, you know, we kind of forget the lesson every year, it seems, Um is that the way they categorize drama and comedy musical sometimes are a little like, eh. And, and in this year, I think it was mostly made sense. I mean, there were literal musicals and stuff like that. But when you look at like in the TV categories, it's something kind of as potent and relevant and sort of serious as Emily in Paris would be put in a comedy category. <laughs> I just feel like that's <laughs> it's just, you know, another HFPA kind of weird thing. Yeah, I really true. appreciate Richard bringing exactly the level of seriousness this all deserves. <laughs> um. uh, and we're all prepared for Lily Collins to win the actress in a comedy Golden Globe, right? I feel like that's Anya Taylor-Joy's to... to well, what no, about sorry. Kaylee Cuoco? Um, oh, yeah, Anya Taylor-Joy's I, in, in a different, different category, drama. but I feel like yeah. I feel like Lily Collins and Anya Taylor-Joy are factor in the same way in terms of the ingenue thing. I know Lily yes. Collins has been around for a while, as has Anya Taylor-Joy, but they both just had these big, buzzy, kind of quarantine-sustaining hits that um, feel very much up to Golden Globes' alley. You yes. don't think that Golden Globes viewers or voters will be scrambling to try to recognize Schitt's Creek for being this? It does feel late in the game to be giving statuettes to Schitt's Creek after it won 20 at the Emmys, but it is something that has never won a Globe before. It was only nominated for the first time this year and is probably the biggest bona fide phenomenon in the TV category. I mean, probably across the awards, more people know and have watched its Creek than any other project represented on this list. And I feel like mm. Catherine O'Hara is the thing about Shit's Creek that people like the most. I mean, so this is a surprisingly competitive category. I know. Who would have guessed? I'm putting my my chips on Kaylee. That's that's where I've been uh, putting my chips all year. So I'm on team Kaylee Cuoco. I'm certainly rooting for her. She would be she it would be a very exciting win, I think, um, and more deserved than Lily Collins from Emily in Paris. I mean, it is interesting that we have pivoted to talking about television relatively quickly, despite our ostensible Oscars obsession. And uh, Joy Press, I think, is writing something about this for us this week, about how the television is kind of where all the interest is in the Golden Globes. I think at least for the people who aren't like true Oscar obsessive like we are. But when I look at the list of what's nominated, like it's just kind of undeniable that like what people have been talking about for the past year is summed up so much more in the TV categories than in movies. You're saying that Jodie Foster's turn in the Mauritanian hasn't been driving conversation. <laughs> this you know is what? my wait. This is my story. Can I tell my story? Yeah. 
Okay, I played Zoom trivia with a member of the HFPA randomly. It was like a Zoom trivia night. There were a bunch of people there. We were randomly sorted into teams. My little team had a member of the HFPA on there. I will not say their name. He was very nice, very good at trivia. He was raving about the Mauritanian. And I was just sort of like taking notes. And I was like, I was like, if the Mauritanian gets nominated for a bunch of things, I'm not going to be surprised because a member of the HFPA, which is a small voting body, was gushing to me about it. So, wow. um this is the first time I have not been like. There's been this weird outlier where I like had some foreknowledge of it. So did what that can I HFPA say? member also happen to mention anything about like Jared Leto sending threatening things to his home? Because <laughs> like I'm just trying to find an explanation for Jared Leto getting nominated for the Little Things, Ooh. a very bad serial killer drama that he is pretty bad in. That yeah, that I mean. Although I, I think I said this before somewhere else, is that like anyone who remembers Aaron Taylor Johnson winning for Nocturnal Animals over Mahershala never Ali, uh, should have been prepared for this because I, those two performances are certainly minted in the same lab. Of all the um, predictions that I got wrong, the one I'm kicking myself most for is like saying to myself, "Surely not Ratchet." <laughs> I was just like, I considered it. I considered it. And then I was like, surely not. Cause I don't know how you guys do your predictions, but what I like to do is I definitely like, I go to gold derby. I see what other people are saying. And then I check in with my heart. And sometimes I listen to my heart. My heart is like, no, Joanna, you cannot put ratchet on your list. And yet here it be, uh, the age of PA's love for Ryan Murphy, uh, abides. Yeah, so not only three nominations for ratchet, but also one for Jim Parsons in Hollywood. Oh, I missed that. Wow. A largely forgotten Ryan Murphy Netflix project. And don't forget The Prom, which, I mean, I think we all knew The Prom was kind of made to make Golden, to get Golden Globe nominations. And James Corden got nominated, which some people are calling a war crime. I think he is fine in that movie. Uh, It did really surprise me, though, that Meryl Streep didn't get nominated. Like, I don't know what happened there. And she had two things to get nominated for, potentially. Yeah, I predicted her to get nominated for both. And instead, (laughs) Kate Hudson gets in for music. When we talk about the correlation between the Golden Globes and the Oscars, there's a lot that there won't be overlap, but sometimes you can see sort of um, narratives like cementing or fomenting. And uh, it seems like Promising Young Woman's uh, performance here at the nominations. uh, Mm -hmm. It bodes well, yeah. Yeah. It bodes well, yeah. Same for Sasha Baron Cohen, I would say. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I mean, go ahead. Well, the momentum behind him felt like it had been cooling a little bit, and this feels like a little uptick back uh, in that direction. Yeah, yeah, I think maybe a useful metric for the Globes, and like we'll see what the SAG Awards bring, as you've already heard us talk about it. Um, But if you don't get nominated for a Globe, like it can be kind of whatever. But if you do, and especially if you're like the Martanian or Promising Young Woman or Borat, like it's a big boost. Um, So you know, for what we were saying about the Martanian and Jodie Foster, like Tahar Rahim is really good in the Martanian. I was. Glad to see his nomination. So I'm curious about what that means for a proper campaign there in a pretty competitive best actor category. Um, and I think if you're like Minari, you can kind of move on from this and be like, you know what? The Globes are going to be weird. They're the Globes. They put us in a weird category. We're going to focus elsewhere. Um, so hopefully that works out OK for anyone who didn't make the list and expected to. Actually, interestingly, in the Minari case, Anthony Bresdikin just wrote a story about this uh, that I edited. Um, so A24 decided proactively to put Minari to submit it as a foreign language film um, because of what happened to The Farewell last mm. year. Because The Farewell was was made a foreign language film like, yeah. after the fact? Interesting. Yeah, they figured that it was going to be it was going to be placed in that category, so they might as well actively put it there themselves. Um, and that, like, knowing that, it would mean that it wasn't um, uh, eligible for Best Picture Drama. Huh. Um, yeah, I'm hoping that by the time uh, you're hearing this, it's been nominated for a bunch of SAG Awards, which makes some of this um, possibly moot. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I, I think the SAGs are going to clarify a lot more about the Oscars as they always do. But I think it is interesting that like, you know, you could wonder in this, especially like there's no parties, there are no schmoozy campaign events. There are no like star studded screenings with Q&As. It's all just home viewing. Um, you might think, oh, well, like, well, you know, maybe the HFPA didn't really watch everything or maybe SAG isn't going to watch everything. But like these voting bodies do to some extent take at least the watching of things seriously, I think, as evidenced in supporting actress uh, for, for motion picture, um, you have Helena Zengel for, in News of the World. And you could say, oh, well, you know, they, they just didn't get to News of the World because it wasn't really clear when that movie was out. And it's like, no, they saw it. Mm-hmm. You know, they just didn't have the juice for like a Hanks nomination or a Paul Greengrass nomination. So we still have these things hanging on in the conversation. But I don't know, I, it, it suddenly feels like after, you know, all things considered that there is a lot of stuff that might, as it happens every year, uh, kind of get lost in the shuffle. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to see. I was just like looking back through the list. Like Bill Murray got nominated for On the Rocks, even though it didn't make it in the comedy category or anything like that. Like perhaps we've stopped talking about him, and we shouldn't have. Um, well, like, I will, have... I'll divulge that. Um, I think it's safe to do it now. That during both of my big critics group votes, the New York Film Critics Circle and National Society of Film Critics, Bill Murray almost won both. Wow! Wow! Really? Yeah. That is so. interesting. Wow. He has kind of. Well, silent support until until this morning. Yeah, Apple sent sort of a crowing, you know, you get all these sort of like, as they should, crowing publicity emails uh, on, on awards uh, mornings. And, uh, you know, but Apple like does have something to be excited about with like Ted Lasso and Wolf Walkers. I think like, uh, you know, Apple has been struggling to be noticed on par with some of the other streaming services. And like Ted Lasso, it was a bona fide hit for them. And um, I'm really happy to see them in there. So, um, Maybe one last thing before we wrap up the Globes. Uh, I, After writing a story about the original song category, I think two years ago now, it's been kind of one of my pet awards categories. Uh, this year is real messy just because there's not really a musical. There's not a hit song. There's not even like a Disney musical. And so you get the lineup at the Golden Globes, which I think is like somewhat indicative. Uh, it really surprised me that the Taylor Swift song from her documentary, Only the Young, was not nominated because it's like... It's a Taylor Swift song. It's integral to the movie. Like, it kind of has the most presence of any of the songs nominated. Uh, And then I'm just slightly losing my mind that the titles of the four of the songs nominated are Fight For You, Hear My Voice, Seen, and Speak Now. And I dare you to tell me what movie any of those are from because those titles (laughs) all sound like they're the exact same song. And then finally, you have uh, Leslie Allen Jr. nominated for his One Night Miami song, but uh, he has this problem that happens, I think, a lot in biopics or movies adapted for musicals where he's playing Sam Cooke in that movie. At the end of the movie, he sings Change Is Gonna Come, which is this great historic song, but uh, that's not eligible. So he has an original song that, you know, without insulting it, is not quite a change that's going to come. So want all good things for him, but I'm not sure what to make of that song or this entire category, but I will be following it closely as is Yeah, I guess that gambit only works when you're Elton John and you write another song for your Elton John movie. (laughs) And like, again, like the rest of the field is kind of like, oh, fine, we'll give it to Elton John. We're not really sure what to do. (laughs) Although I guess Justice for Into the Unknown, which Frozen from Frozen, which is not not half bad. Is that Stockholm Syndrome? (laughs) Oh, definitely. Like, this is how I constantly in my head think why did none of the Lego Movie 2 songs get nominated for Oscars because I've listened to them uh, every single day with my children for like months now. Okay, to move away from the Golden Globes, uh, we're going to talk about Sundance. But first, I wanted to get into uh, what, according to Richard and Hillary, might very well be the show I need to binge next. Um, It's uh, Catherine Heigl's Comeback. It's a TV show on Netflix called Firefly Lane that I know basically almost nothing else about. So I'm going to let you guys tell me all about it. 
Well, actually, Katie, I'm kind of curious. You know that the show is called Firefly Landing. You know that Katherine Heigl is in it. What do you think it's about? I, well, <laughs> I, I know that it's about it's her and someone else, and it's about them being friends, and I know that much. And it's Congratulations. Not, not, That's literally the entire show. <laughs> segment over. <laughs> yeah. I kind of thought, it, I think I think maybe I got it confused with Umbrella Academy and thought there was a supernatural element to it, but uh, that appears to have been wrong. Or Winx the Fate Saga or the Winx Fate the Winx Saga, whatever. <laughs> If you count the wigs and uh, the, uh, like, hazy camera work in order to make Katherine Heigl and Sarah Chalk approximate college students, then, yes, there is a supernatural element. Um, otherwise. Or its treatment of Seattle as a media hub. <laughs> That's sort of, <laughs> sort of a fantasy as well. But, yeah, it's based on a novel um, that I think is pretty popular by this author, Kristen Hanna, who has a ton of things that have been optioned for movies and that now for TV. So... I think this is the first thing of hers that's been, you know, brought fully to fruition as an adaptation. And Heigl's a producer on it. Uh, she's one of the two leads with Sarah Chalk. And I think the the most daring aspect of the show for me, which I have a review up on the site if people want to read it, is that it spans from the late 1970s till at least 2003, uh, which is, you know, not that unusual for like a miniseries or something. But... Every episode contains about three different timelines in each episode. So you're jumping from the 70s where it's two different actors playing them as teenagers to the 80s when they're in college or just post-college to the early 2000s when they're adults with adult problems. And um, and you just keep jumping back and forth trying to kind of figure out what life choices and twists of fate like led them to where they are, including a mystery about someone having died. We don't know who it is. So it's a lot going on for a show that I think might seem from its marketing to be just simply like a drama about friends and like romance. Is that the This Is Us format where it's just like jumping among timelines or is it more complicated than This Is Us? I think it adds an extra timeline because I think This Is Us is there just... Are, yeah, as you, as you pointed out, Richard, there are four timelines altogether in Firefly Lane. That's a lot. Which is a lot. Um, I actually... Uh, going to have to out myself now. I read the book that Firefly Lane is based on, and I also read the sequel. Mm. Um, so I guess I'm something of a Firefly Lane-averse expert. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, I, I think Richard got to this really well in his review. It's, uh, it's soapy, and it's frequently kind of silly, um, but it's definitely absorbing. It's, it's got maybe you know too much going on by half, uh, but I really enjoyed it. I think that, like... It's it's easy to make a show about friends through the years. Um, and a lot of the time in those shows, you kind of wonder why these people are actually friends, whether they actually have a reason to keep, like, seeing each other and uh, interacting with each other besides, like, the fact that if they didn't, there wouldn't be a story. But I think that Sarah Chalk and Katherine Heigl have pretty good friendship chemistry um, that, uh, as Richard also said, that while neither of them is really playing somebody who seems like a real person, they're close closer approximations than you might expect to find in a show like this and mm. that like because the two of them have something resembling a real connection it kind of makes the show uh and it makes the show something that you want to keep watching yeah and i think that like you know this is us is obviously like was something that i'm sure appealed to netflix is like well that show's popular it has different timelines it's sentimental you know but also, like, I think the success critically, the HBO success um, of My Brilliant Friend, which, you know, is another adaptation of a book series about two childhood friends into adulthood, 
what what people seem to really love about those books and and also the Firefly Lane books, I guess, is is how thoroughly you can understand a relationship it, when looked at in the aggregate of several decades. And yes, that's a really tricky feat to do in hour long television episodes. I think they actually manage it pretty well to the extent that by the end, regardless of some of the silly aspects of the show, some of the you know ridiculous kind of conceits about like how the TV news business works or how talk show business works or whatever it is, how real estate works in, in Seattle, um, <laughs> you really do feel like you've been through something with them, you know, and, and that sounds corny, but like I genuinely at the end of the 10 episode run, which I, I, I did, you know, a long binge just before reviewing it having started the series last year, um, I, I, I felt kind of exhausted, but in the way that you feel when you've read like a, a really juicy, satisfying novel, you know, hmm. and I, I think shows like this often get, or, or shows about these kind of relationships between women, um, get kind of dismissed as fluff or whatever. And there are elements of this show that are, that are again, silly or sort of, uh, over the top, but I think at its core, the show is doing something really interesting and successful in its kind of almost like physical, that physical manifestation of, uh, of feeling like you've been through something with someone. And it's also just fun to like the, the present day uh, section of the show is actually set in 2003. Um, and so there's a lot of, I don't know if either of you were BoJack Horseman fans, but there's a BoJack Horseman episode that takes place in 2007 where like, there are just a lot of like very ostentatious references to 2007 and it's like a, a parody of when we see a flashback sequence in the 80s or whatever and everybody's like solving a Rubik's Cube on a skateboard while like Oh my God, what are the cultural pads. references to that? I feel uncomfortable with 2007 being a period piece, honestly, so I'm, I'm, I'm not ready. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely that aspect of it, but I think that it it makes... It it gives a little, a little thrill of the familiar um, to be, especially because there's this meta... Uh, layer of like Catherine Heigl playing a very famous TV star in the early and mid aughts, um, hmm. which is something that Catherine Heigl was. And then her career kind of hit this stumbling block when she was labeled difficult. Um, Partly uh, thanks to Vanity Fair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was, I was just about to say. Um, so yeah, there is, I, I don't, it's not really clear how much of that is intentional, uh, but it definitely adds a layer to the show uh, that makes it deeper and more interesting. This sounds very appealing. I mean, it feels like Netflix has really, like, between this and Bridgerton, and then I think there's another, like, juicy, soapy, I mean, I guess the, like, the Shonda Rhimes model, like, coming over to Netflix entirely. It, it seems like this is a, this is an area their, their algorithm is leaning into, of, like, a show that makes you feel like you've watched it, like, you know, a, a novel that feels like a journey. Yeah, completely. And like, there's a lot of sex, they swear, like you can clearly, <laughs> it's kind of like they made a network show and then like inserted a bunch of swear words and... <laughs> it has it has a strange kind of like straddling the line between something cable-y and something networky. Uh, but I don't know. It's an it's an interesting combination. Should we look forward to Catherine Heigl's Golden Globe nomination a year from now? <laughs> yeah, that's coming probably. Yeah. All right. Well, you heard it here first, everybody. Okay, and to wrap up the show, we're going to talk about the Sundance Film Festival, which uh, ended this week. It's a slightly shorter Sundance than usual. It usually be stretching into a second weekend, um, and it was a different Sundance. It was all virtual. It had a smaller lineup. Uh, it had, you know, maybe fewer starry films because uh, Richard, as you wrote in our um, Sundance wrap up, that's probably on the site as you listen to this. Um, you know, the production pipeline got messed up, so there just weren't as many movies to qualify. But 
At the same time, the biggest sale ever for a film happened at Sundance this year. Um, so maybe I was, I was thinking we could start by talking about Coda, which I think if you were not watching or attending Sundance is maybe the movie, the only movie you would have heard of. It's, it seems like it broke through in a way and then Apple paid $25 million for it, which kind of ensured that it broke through in a big way. Um, I wrote a review of it. I just kind of fell for it really hard. Um, Richard, I think you were a little bit more of a skeptic. So maybe before you go throw cold water on this girl and her dreams to be a musician, um, Hillary, you can, you can talk about <laughs> Go to two. Well, listen, Katie, I'm not made of stone. If a, girl, <laughs> if a girl is going to sing an audition song for her dream college and she's going to falter at the beginning and then she's going to find her voice quite literally as she looks at her family, like who is not going? I mean, I guess I know who is not going to be affected by that, but... I well, hold on a second. <laughs> that scene's lovely, and I cried at it. Partly because you know she starts signing to her deaf family, which is great, but also she's <sighs> singing both sides now, like the I best know. song ever written. So, yeah. no, I was not. My heart was not stoned to that moment. Okay, I mean, I I can see I can see objections to Coda. It does seem pretty Sundancey in that we've got a quirky family. They're kind of rough and tumble. Uh, the conflict between, you know, a daughter who wants to go her own way and uh, the parents who need her. Like, there are, I think, a lot of themes that probably come up in a lot of sort of Sundancey family dramas. Sassy um, but music it is, teacher, cute right, boyfriend. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Katie, I think you said this in your review that it kind of, it it is a sea of tropes we've seen before, but they're executed well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like, it's not going to be breaking new ground. And I don't I don't think even its biggest fans have been accused of it. But there was just something so cozy about stepping into this movie and it being like, hello, here's a story I'm going to take you through. You think you know what's going to happen with that love interest? That is going to happen and you're going to love it. <laughs> and I felt that way with everything that came in the movie that I just, like, I knew that beat and I was ready for it. Is this music teacher gruff but actually has a soft <laughs> interior? <laughs> like, you bet. Um, and uh, one other way that they've baked in Sundanciness into the movie in terms of the love interest is that he's played by Ferdia Walsh Pilo, who was the lead in another musically tinged Sundance smash, Sing Street. Oh, I love Sing Street so, so much. So there's a lot of synergy there. Um, I like all those tropes. I like, I, I, but I think in, in, in Coda's case, which I thought was a sweet movie, I, I liked it. To me, I think it's, it, and this is not backlash, this is just sort of like considering the movie's profile in full. To me, it does not hold up to a $25 million price tag and all of the hype that they want to drop it for this year's award season, all this stuff. Like that to me feels really outsized for a movie that is sweet and and and, and features really um, great turns by three deaf actors, um, lovely music, good scenery. It's, you know, filmed in Gloucester, Massachusetts, not too far from where I'm from in Boston. And you know, it has a nice homey vibe to it. But uh, the, the way that I kind of put it to you, Katie, in that that the Sundance wrap up um, and had mentioned to a friend who also watched it was if this movie had been like a Disney Plus original and premiered on the streaming service and I had to review it I, I, raves across the board, I would have I would have been like, mm. this is so uh, like this is such a good example of this kind of coming of age movie. Mm -hmm. But when held up as like the big film at a festival, yes, a sort of truncated festival, but still a big festival, international festival that's supposed to celebrate like bold, artistic, you know, independent filmmaking. This to me feels almost antithetical to that project um, in, in its conventional plotting and everything like that. And yes, the aspect of it being about a child of deaf parents and those deaf parents and her brother being in the film, that makes it different and worthy. It's not unworthy of being at Sundance nor of getting good reviews. It just feels like... I wonder if in some ways winning the grand jury prize, getting the $25 million sale, if that's in a weird way kind of kind of hang an albatross around the movie's neck that it can't hold up. 
Yeah, this is a classic Sundance problem, both in terms of like selling for a huge amount of money and then also winning a bunch of prizes. Like the thing that makes me think of most recently is Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. I think this is a better movie than that was, but that was like the big Sundance hit. And then it came out in the summer and just like dropped like a stone. And I imagine being bought by Apple and probably coming out while the pandemic is still happening. God knows. Um, Coda will be released in a slightly different way, but it, it does put this huge spotlight on movies that oftentimes are just like very lovely movies that don't deserve to be treated as or like that deserve to be treated well, but like they can't be treated as like the second coming because people are going to expect something that it's not really. Yeah. Or as an artistic triumph, because I think we all agree that you know, this is fairly well-trod material. Yeah. Like if like, Gretchen Mall had been a Sundance movie in the mid-90s. <laughs> <laughs> you know, bad things can happen from overhype, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, the, the thing about it dropping in this year's awards race, like, I, I kind of bought into that theory because the supporting actress category this year is really wonky and a little empty. And Marley Matlin is terrific in this movie as the mom, and she has won an Oscar before. I could very easily see her kind of popping in on that. But I'm not sure Apple's going to drop $25 million and then throw the movie out next week. You know, you kind of want, like, maybe they send it to another virtual festival or two, you know, like, figuring out a way to, to build it up from there. Um, it would be great if Marley Matlin could get the Glenn Close spot. Yeah, I think oh, like in sim- Hillbilly similar, Elegy. Yeah, yeah, it's like a sort of a sort of similar role. You know, she's kind of like a salty matriarch. Um, she has like, you know, the hard bitten background and stuff. And I think that like, if if one of these two, uh, well, I guess Glenn Close is not a previous Oscar winner, but if one of these celebrated actresses is going to get a supporting actress nomination, I would rather give it to Marley Madeline. Yeah, I would agree with that. In my imagined scenario, in which they're up against each other for a single slot. I'll also say, as I was going to go back and kind of dunk on the uh, the top Sundance Prize winners of recent years, uh, many of which have gone on to like essentially not exist. Uh, Minari did win last year, so there you know there is a track record for being a success at Sundance and then being a success more broadly. Um, this is definitely not a um, a black mark against something. Um, okay, so. I, what else would you guys say passes for the next biggest movie at Sundance? Like uh, the Questlove documentary Summer of Soul won the documentary prize. Um, it doesn't have a distributor yet, but I'm sure it will soon. Um, what else felt like the big deals? Well, I, I, I think, you know, given how strange the festival was this year, how you know limited the selection was, it, it's hard to sort of imagine how any one movie would would fare in a bigger, you know, sort of more robust regular gear festival. Mm-hmm. I think Coda still would have played like gangbusters. Yes. Um, but there's a, a movie called Mass um, that, intriguingly enough, is written and directed by Fran Kranz, who people might know from Dollhouse and uh, Cabin in the Woods, a number of other, not all, not only Joss Whedon things, but, you know, mm-hmm. he's a kind of TV comedy actor. Um, and he made this really moving, serious drama about a uh, school shooting. Not The school shooting is not in the movie. It's just about years afterward where two sets of parents meet up to kind of reconcile what happened and have a conversation about it. Um, and it's, it feels like a play, but in a good way, it just feels so intimate and closely observed and well-written and beautifully acted by Martha Plimpton, Jason Isaacs, Ann Dowd, Reed Burney. And I think that even in a bigger year, yes, it wouldn't have screened at the Eccles on a Saturday night, but it would have, you know, I think it would have gotten attention and I hope that it can, can can sustain the good reviews it got at this festival this year. Like, because I think that Mass is um, a really worthy movie that talks about uh, a pertinent subject. Um, not It's not really about gun control at all, it, but it, it's about the, sort of the trauma of, of the long lasting trauma of, of violence and, um, and not paying attention to what people are doing online. Mm-hmm. 
I, I don't know. I think that was a real standout for me in a way that I just didn't see coming at all. Yeah, I like that movie a lot. I did find it like a little long. And maybe that's just by Sundance standards where like many minutes or many movies are 80 minutes long. And you're like, OK, get to it. Because, um, you know, it really is you're locked in a room with these people. It, it feels like it could have been a play in another life. It wasn't. And I do think there's a lot of like cinematic power to what it's doing. So it's not like it feels super stagey. Um but I think, Richard, you said, like, it feels like going to the theater, like you're watching these actors, like being able to, like, really dive into something. And you're like, OK, when's Martha Plimpton's moment going to come? When's Jason Isaac's moment going to come? And they're all really terrific in it. And then also, as you know, my hobby horse of, like, not only being a parent but raising boys, like, watching this and thinking, like, God, the weight of how you raise a child is so massive. And these people are grappling with it in such a specific way. Yeah. Um, and, and I and- like the framing of it. That just, like, it, they have um, Rita Wallace playing, playing the woman who runs the church and is, like, setting up the room for them. There's so much humanity to it that is outside of the like very deep acting feelings of it it feels lived in and like it takes place in a real place which I really appreciated it does and and I think you know that's really a credit to the writing and the actors and I, I you know I think uh, you know for our sort of little gold many purposes like Ann Dowd who plays the mother of the the boy who did the shooting has such a tricky role to do um and aided by good writing um by Fran Kranz like she really just nails this character, you know, this character and this, this kind of this idea. And I think that Dowd, you know, she won an Emmy a few years ago for Handmaid's Tale, I believe as a guest actress, right? Or was it supporting? Um, I think it was, I think it was guest. And, and, and that was kind of coming off the heels of her strong turns in The Leftovers and Compliance, which, um, you know, people thought she might get a supporting actress Oscar nomination for that. It didn't happen, but you know, she's had a kind of later career break. And I just wonder, like, even if it's not mass, like, I just feel like this movie inches and out closer to what I think is kind of an inevitable, uh, at least Oscar nomination uh, in yeah. the coming years. Yeah, I would think so. Also during, um, like, so I wrote this story that's on the site now about like going to Sundance, uh, online parties and how strange, but fulfilling that was. And they did a kind of Zoom birthday sing-along party for Ann Dowd on Sunday after Mass premiered. And um, the, the, the you know all the cast and crew of Mass was there, but also Craig Zobel, her compliance director. So I was I was glad to see that that they're still in touch. Maybe one other big-ish title that I would mention is Passing, which is um, Rebecca Hall's directorial debut, um, and it stars Tessa Thompson and Ruth Negga, who I think I think we're all very much team Tessa Thompson and Ruth Negga here. I, it, particularly since Loving came out, I feel like Ruth Negga hasn't worked as much as I would want her to, and like she shows up in Ad Astra for two scenes, and I'm like, yes, make this entire movie about her life on Mars, and then you know the movie moves on without her. Um, but I thought she was really terrific as this really tricky character. Like the movie is set in the 20s, it's based on a book from the 20s, and it's stylized in some way like they they all kind of talk a little old timey like I was kind of thinking about the way the acting style in Mank is, is styled after old studio movies and so yeah, with, they, they have that kind of uh, like old timey mid-Atlantic accent thing going yeah and they use like words that no one would use now and, and I really liked the kind of vibe it created it felt like kind of immersing yourself in this whole world gone by and Ruth Nega is this woman who you know not only kind of has that style about her but is a black woman passing for white and so her entire life is this performance really and she's kind of the kind of person who you know walks into a room and wants all the attention to be on her like she is performing in many different ways um and i thought she was so wonderful you know this movie is it's black and white and it's beautiful and it's kind of hushed in a way and i think it can make the emotions of a really emotional story like a little less accessible than i would want them to be but i was really taken with kind of the world that it set up and um especially with performance yeah, I think it feel it felt a little more 
like directed than a lot of actors first uh like directorial debuts when they go behind the camera um Mm -hmm. and I think that uh that was a a pleasant maybe not a surprise because I don't know what I would have thought about uh Rebecca Hall's directing style but I think it was you know something notable yeah yeah I I think my issues with that movie were that it was almost too studied you know, I, I appreciated that, um, you know, the, 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 like you said, the, the kind of affect in the voices and the filming, but also the sound mix feels very old. You know, mm-hmm. it feels like an older movie. It kind of has this hush to it. And I appreciate Like Mank, too. Like, it's, this is the theme. Yeah, and I appreciate that, that kind of technical effort. But I think that in, in Passing's case, like, it does a little to suffocate the movie, you know. And mm. it's, it's a story about big things, about colorism. Uh, within the black community and about status and, you know, economy, like it's about a lot, but it plot wise, not a ton happens. And I think that to have that fact kind of coupled with this muted, almost deliberately somewhat alienating style, it it, it made for a less than like kind of satisfying movie watching experience, I guess. Mm. Um, But I do think that like every time Ruth Nega was on screen, the movie like turned up, you know, a bunch of watts, you know, and, and I, and I kind of missed her every time she wasn't on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, Katie, it's a really great reminder that like, I wish she was working all, you know, m- so much more because she's such a captivating screen presence. I've also always thought her face like, looks like a silent film star. Like she's got these big eyes and like her chin kind of points in this like heart shape and she looks like Clara Bow or something. So seeing her in this period just felt so right to me. Like I've been, I didn't realize I've been waiting for her to wear a cloche hat until she was wearing a cloche hat. Okay, we'll wrap up Sundance, but Richard, uh, maybe shout out a couple other things that you saw and liked. Yeah, I would say, you know, if people want to hear about stuff that I that was bad, I think um, <laughs> uh, a lot, unfortunately, it was bad. But I think that one of the higher profile disappointments for me that was supposed to, that was going to be a Cannes movie was John and the Hole, uh, an American movie from, I believe, a Spanish director that I believe the director himself has called it sort of Michael Haneke's version of Home Alone, oh boy. Uh, which sounds intriguing execution mm-hmm. in execution it's not uh it's my uh, michael c hall jennifer ely and Teza formiga stuck in a hole because they're well the, the the brother of the family uh who's like 13 has tossed them down there sort of and uh it it's a very affected kind of empty movie uh which i think you see a lot of at indie film festivals you know just kind of it's all atmosphere and no substance mm-hmm. so that was disappointing um and that was i think probably the highest profile disappointment for me but there were other good you know bright spots i think um i don't love the way it ends but there's a swedish movie called uh pleasure that was it's set in america but it's about a Swedish woman who travel, young woman who travels to Los Angeles to become the biggest star in the porn industry. Um, so it's a little bit boogie nights set in the here and now mixing in the trappings of bling ring and, uh, spring breakers a bit, this kind of very vivid up close depiction of a, you know, a, a sort of ecosystem that is on the margins of everyday life, you know, um, in a really fascinating and very graphic way. And that film star is really good. So I think keep an eye out for that. Maybe they hopefully they can tweak the ending a bit. Um, but I would say the other brightest, maybe the, my favorite movie at the festival uh, was a documentary called Flea. Um, I think it's my is, favorite too. Yeah. It, it's just so arresting. It, it's this, um, it's a Danish documentary. Um, from, about the red hot chili peppers. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's really just about his, it's mostly about his acting career. Like they go, <laughs> Um, but, uh, they go into, you know, um, all those things, but, um, 
No, it's about this uh, this this guy uh, who's called Amin in the film is not actually that's not his real name. Who is a child uh, or tween uh, had to flee Afghanistan uh, with his uh, family when the when the Taliban was was taking control of the country, and um, and so it's him talking to the filmmaker, and then sort of these long you know stretches where he's telling his story which might make for a static thing of just a guy on camera, even though the story is pretty extraordinary, but what they do to preserve his anonymity. And I think to add an extra visual element to the film is it's animated. So I think the interviews are rotoscoped and then there's all this hand drawn, more traditional animation depicting this family's flight from, um, from mortal danger. And then all of the struggle they have when they get to Russia and on the, trying to get to uh, further West into Europe. Um, and it's and oh, also in the, the, the I mean, uh, is dealing with his sexuality. He's figuring out that he's gay in the midst of all of this horrible, you know, uh, refugee stuff. Um, so it's just a really arresting movie that is done so sensitively and beautifully. And I, I and neon bought it, I think, for like somewhere in the millions of dollars. And uh, I, I really hope that that movie gets a big push because it deserves it. Yeah, that movie's terrific, and I would I would expect it to get um, kind of some big pushes. I wanted to shout out a couple other things that I also liked. There's two documentaries that are, like, pretty standard as documentaries go, but I think uh, both had a lot to recommend them. One is uh, Rita Moreno, A Girl Who Just Decided to Go For It, which I think is an American Masters PBS production, so you might see it on PBS. But it's Rita Moreno telling her life story, telling about how Marlon Brando was a horrible boyfriend and um, all kinds of other stuff that you want to hear about. And she's such a captivating presence. Norman Lear is also a big figure in it, and the two of them are just like the spryest uh, octo and nonagenarians you can imagine and you kind of want to like bottle whatever it is that they have powering them and get it for yourself. Um, and then there's a documentary called My Name is Polly Murray, which is from um, Betsy West and Julie Cohen, who made RBG. And they um, so Polly Murray is kind of a local hero here in Durham, North Carolina. Um, and they were kind of a trailbreaking like lawyer and activist uh, throughout much of the 20th century. Um, and then was like somewhat left behind, partly because like when um, kind of the black power movement rose up in the late 60s, Polly Murray was like a little bit out of step with them. So like they were so ahead of their time that they weren't quite ready for it. Also, Polly Murray used she pronouns throughout their life. But a lot of people have since kind of come to reconsider that based on their uh, gender identity issues. It's, it's a fascinating element of that story. Um, I don't know where you'll be able to see that, but I think it's worth keeping an eye out for. Um, and then one last thing is um, this TV pilot called These Days. Did you guys get emails about this? It's got William Jackson Harper. I feel like that it got a pretty solid push behind it. And I don't know if anyone else saw it. Uh, no, oh. I didn't. Mm-mm. Oh, uh, so it's 20 minutes and it's set in the early days of COVID and it's kind of about this. It's 20 minutes. 20, I'm in. Yeah. 20 minute TV pilot. Who who can ask for more? Um, and so she's in her apartment in New York and there's people clapping at 7 p.m. for healthcare workers and she's figuring out Zoom dating. So it kind of treats early COVID like a period piece, which is in some ways charming, even though it's, you know, kind of terrible time to revisit. Um, I just thought it was lovely. I'm not sure what's going to happen to it, but I would keep an eye out for it as a, like a potential web series to debut um, in the near future. These days is a good title, but I feel like the best COVID uh, period piece title would be In These Times. I mean, In, in These Uncertain Times. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you mean the phrase I've written in every review since last March? <laughs> Hope this email finds you well in these uncertain times. Yeah, yeah that's going to be the title of your memoir, I think. That does it for this week's episode. Uh, We'll be back next week. Uh, In the meantime, you can find us at FanityFair.com with lots of Sundance coverage, lots of Golden Globes coverage, and um, plenty of other great stuff. You can also find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. At Richard and the Hole. Mm Mm-hmm. And Hillary. (laughs) At Hillary is a flea. (laughs) (laughs) And Joanna had to go, but she's at Joe Wrote This. 
And then this week, we're going to start trying out something new. You can text us and we will text you back. If you would like to join, uh, you can text 917-809-7096 or you can go to joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen. Uh, we'll be sending you updates on new episodes, on the awards race, and um, anything else that we think you need to know. So if you want to hear from us more, uh, please sign up and we'll see how that goes. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of our spinoff podcast, Little Gold Men Nights, goes to Hillary Busis. There's a lot of sex, they swear. 